Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 130. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. I warned you that things could get ugly. And man, did they get ugly this week. And we all understand now, painfully, why this continues to be a critical time to stay vigilant an attack by a group known as ISIS-K took the lives of American service members standing guard at the airport and wounded several others seriously. He had also wounded a number of civilians, and civilians were killed as well. Thirteen U.S. service members were killed. Twelve Marines, one Navy corpsman, and one soldier and over 170 Afghan civilians, whose names most of us will never know. Almost 200 Americans and Afghans dead, with many more injured for life. 13 of America's sons and daughters are gone. Lance Corporal David Espinosa, 20, of Rio Bravo, Texas. Sergeant Nicole Gee, 23, of Roseville, California. Staff Sergeant Darren Taylor Hoover, 31, of Utah. Corporal Hunter Lopez, 22, from Indio, California. Lance Corporal Riley McCullum, 20, from Jackson, Wyoming. Lance Corporal Dylan Marola, 20, of Rancho Cucamonga, California. Lance Corporal Kareem Nakui, 20, of Norco, California. Corporal Deegan William Tyler Page, 23, of Omaha, Nebraska. Sergeant Johanny Rosario, 25, from Lawrence, Massachusetts. Corporal Umberto Sanchez, 22, from Logansport, Indiana. Lance Corporal Jared Schmitz, 20, from Wentzville, Missouri. Navy Corpsman Max Soviak, 22, of Berlin Heights, Ohio. And Army Staff Sergeant Ryan Noss, 23, of Coryton, Tennessee. 13 gone. Only one of them was over 30 years old. The rest were in their 20s. The New York Times reported this. After Lance Corporal Riley McCullum, 20, landed in Afghanistan with his Marine unit. His father, Jim, began checking his phone for a little green dot. Mr. McCullum had not been able to talk to his son, but the green dot next to Riley's name on his messaging app meant that he was online, that he was still okay. 
When the news came that a suicide bomber killed 13 service members outside the airport in Kabul on Thursday, Mr. McCollum again checked for the dot. His son was on his first overseas deployment. He'd recently gotten married, and he was about to become a father. Mr. McCollum messaged his son, Hey man, you good? But the green dot was gone. An unimaginable loss for a father, for a family. A tremendous loss for our country. That's just one of the 13 we're starting to learn about. Riley McCollum died a hero, helping others get to freedom. Remember his name and the way he lived. And remember a young cadet, Johnny Rosario, volunteered at a center in Massachusetts serving meals to the hungry. As a Marine, she stood outside the Kabul airport screening women and children. It was a volunteer assignment for Marines that only women can do in Afghanistan. Johani was killed helping women and children escape the Taliban and find freedom. She was 25 years young. When you come home from war, people always ask you how many people you killed. They never ask how many you saved. Sergeant Johani Rosario saved more than we'll ever know. She's a true hero of the highest level. Share her story. Be inspired by her example. And wrap your arms around her family, all service members, and especially TAPS, the organization we've talked about before that helps these families. Led by our friend and previous guest, Bonnie Carroll, TAPS continues to step into the pain to help all the families shattered by the attack. And they need your support. They need you to be a helper. America now finally understands, painfully understands, how catastrophically bad our exit from Afghanistan has been. After the heart-wrenching scenes of babies being passed over razor wire and children being crushed by crowds and people falling from airplanes, now there's this. And on the way out, after the attack, the U.S. fired an airstrike in retaliation to get back at ISIS-K. And in one last nasty insult to the Afghan people on the way out, that strike killed 10 Afghan civilians. And of the 10, eight were children under 18. Ramal Ahmadi could barely speak through the grief of having lost three children in Sunday's explosion. Biniyamin was five, Arwin was three, and Aya was just one and a half. They were all killed. That is how the last few days of the U.S. evacuation in Afghanistan went down. It had to end sooner or later, but it didn't have to end like this. And on August 31st, President Biden kept his pledge to pull all U.S. forces out. Last night in Kabul, the United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history. So after 20 long, painful, horrible, often forgotten, deadly years, the U.S. has pulled our troops out of Afghanistan. 
But no matter what Joe Biden says, the war is not over. The war is not over for the people of Afghanistan, not even close. We've left so many allies behind and such a mess. This is not the end. It's just a new chapter in a terribly painful story. The president, the White House, and others want to turn the page. But millions in Afghanistan can't. And millions of us here never will. The war is not over. And it's not a success, no matter what they try to say. You can't just talk about how many you got out. And there's an effort now to spike the ball and say this is a good news story and we're moving on. But we can't move on. And most folks who are putting country above party know it. The people raising their voices are not just the chatter class. They're not partisans who hate Biden. They're not just the media. They're the people who know. And they're Democrats. Democrat Senator and wounded veteran Tammy Duckworth this week called for an investigation. She said the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee should quickly begin investigating the rapid collapse of the Afghan government and forces after two decades of American investment of resources and troops and why we were unable to better anticipate it. That's not from a talking head on Fox News. That's from a Democrat in the Senate and a veteran. It's very notable how few experienced Democrats and how few veterans who are Democrats and others who really know their stuff on national security have stuck their heads up to defend Biden on the abysmal execution of the withdrawal. Don't let the White House spin it. The outrage is truly and broadly bipartisan. And now there's breaking news. NBC, The Wall Street Journal, and others are reporting that a majority of the interpreters and other U.S. visa applicants were left behind in Afghanistan. The State Department admitted today that the U.S. still doesn't have reliable data on who was evacuated from Afghanistan. They don't even know who was on the planes. Of the 120,000 people evacuated from Kabul, only 8,500 were Afghans. That means of the special immigrant visas, our allies, the people who stood alongside us, only 5 or 10% of them got out. This latest news is making it more and more clear how the Afghanistan exit is the great American betrayal of Afghanistan. It's the great betrayal of our dearest values as Americans. The truth about all this is going to come out fast and it's ugly. And it's the truth that most of the American people are just starting to understand. And many refuse to understand. But it's been a betrayal of our allies, of our veterans, and of our values. And in a few weeks, as the truth continues to come out, it will be very hard for the White House and their allies to spin the evacuation as a success. That's the truth. The hard truth. And it's the truth we've been bringing you for the last three episodes of this show. And it's a truth we'll bring you again in this episode. After 20 years, all U.S. troops are now finally out of Afghanistan. Is that a good thing? Is the war really over? What happens now to our Afghan allies left behind? And will there be any accountability for failure in Washington at all? After gripping episodes with Matt Zeller, 
Jane Horton, and Kristen Rouse. This newest episode is keeping our focus squarely on Afghanistan. The military pieces, the media coverage, the political spin, the humanitarian need, the human story. We're digging into all of what is happening right now. Independent Americans is continuing our unique focus on the debacle in Afghanistan with an urgent new conversation with an inspiring American leader who's deep in the fight and one of the few who's actually been there in the last few weeks. We talked to leaders of the Digital Dunkirk. We talked to veteran activists. We talked to a gold star wife. Now we'll talk to a leader who's fighting the political fight in the media, in Congress, and inside his own party. He's been a soldier, he's been a humanitarian, and now he's a member of Congress. My friend, Congressman Peter Meyer. Congressman Peter Meyer has been there. He's a leader for this moment. And he just returned from a controversial, unauthorized visit to Afghanistan made alongside fellow veteran and a Democrat, Seth Moulton. And they'll take us inside what they saw. Representative Peter Meyer is a freshman Republican congressman who succeeded Republican maverick Justin Amash in the seat representing Michigan's 3rd District. Peter's fighting for Afghans. He's fighting partisanship. He's fighting his own party. And he's fighting for real change. After high school, Peter enlisted in the Army and deployed to Iraq with an intelligence unit. After returning, Peter joined Team Rubicon, a veterans-based disaster organization led by Episode 107 guest Jake Wood, where Peter led humanitarian efforts focused on South Sudan's refugee crisis. He also led operations in New York after Superstorm Sandy, in Oklahoma after a series of devastating tornadoes, and in the Philippines after Super Typhoon Yolanda. Peter then took a job with a non-governmental organization inside Afghanistan. He ran the NGO's advisory operations in southern Afghanistan, managing a team that helped aid workers provide relief to the Afghan people. Then, he served as acting deputy director for Afghanistan, delivering emergency assistance to aid workers after kidnappings and targeted killings. Peter knows Afghanistan. He knows national security. He knows humanitarian work. And he knows this moment. And you need to hear what he knows. He's fighting for Afghanistan. He's fighting for America. He's fighting for accountability around the failures of the last month. And he's fighting for his fellow veterans. He's also fighting with his own party. He's one of only 10 Republicans in the House to vote for the impeachment of Donald Trump. And he's fighting now to repeal the AUMF the authorization for the use of military force, the blank check for the president that was issued after 9-11. He's also fighting for the truth inside what happened on the January 6th insurrection. And he's fighting for the soul of the Republican Party. I've known Peter for over a decade. I'll ask him to share the hard truth. And I'll ask him some hard questions about if he can actually do anything in Congress, about why he's a Republican or a member of any party, especially now. And I'll ask him if he'll stay in that party if Trump is the nominee for president in just a few years. Peter's a straight shooter and a good man, and a voice we all need to hear. He's a critical voice. 
that you'll hear coming up. When I remind you to look for the helpers, he is another one of a different kind, a political kind. This is a hard-hitting pod that explores the war for the truth and the media war after the war and the war that's coming soon in Congress about the war. It'll help you understand the ground truth, avoid the spin, and peel back what's really happening in Congress and what needs to happen. It's another conversation to inspire and to help you stay vigilant because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, especially right now. And we all need to pay it. So Independent Americans is bringing more light to contrast the heat and bringing more truth to fight the spin. And we're bringing the righteous media five eyes, independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And we're bringing the ground truth again, the real truth you need to hear about Afghanistan, about Congress, about the future of national security, and about the future of politics in America. Welcome to a deeper look inside the perilous final days of the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan. Welcome to a side of the war that the president and the White House really don't want to talk about anymore and may not even understand. Welcome to a look into what comes next. Welcome to a look inside the war for public opinion, a war for the truth. Welcome to the next phase of America's forever war, the political war. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 130. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country, around the world, around Afghanistan, Welcome back to our continuing series focused on Afghanistan, the aftermath, and what's next. I am very grateful uh, to bring uh, a man to this program that is a voice of the moment. We've brought you folks that have been deep in this experience, that have been leading on various levels. And this is a guy that I think is really important for this moment, but also this bigger moment in America and some of the issues we dig into about political division on this show. He's a man I've known for a long time now. I think he's a heroic uh, courageous, thoughtful public servant, and I'm proud to call him a friend and have him, have him on this program. The great and powerful Congressman Peter Meyer joins us here on Independent Americans. Welcome, my friend. Thank you, Paul. It's an honor to be here. Appreciate you making the time and excited to have this conversation. And we both dress down a little bit, which is good for folks watching on video, uh, because I think it's a reflection of the fact that you're a real human being. <laughs> and I think a lot of folks kind of lose a bit of the humanity when they go into Congress. So from the moment you went into Congress. I was uh, I was excited and I was hopeful. And I think, you know, you've uh, you've delivered on a lot of that in terms of your integrity and other things that we consider important. Um, but let me ask, where do we actually meet? Was it was it through Team Rubicon when you were working at Team Rubicon? Yeah, I think it was probably or either TR or Student Veterans of America, SBA. Um, so probably a decade ago. 
and yeah. change. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you know, we served together on the board or the advisory board for With Honor, which is an organization trying to get veterans from both sides elected. Um, and I think you've, you've really, really risen to the moment. And I hope that this program and others will help people understand a little bit more about you and, and why you're so important for this moment. But let me ask you a question, Pete. I ask of everyone, where are you? Uh, where are you right now? And how are you? Yeah, I, I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, we're in district. Um, we, we were, were supposed to be on August recess. Obviously, uh, that became curtailed by both responding to Afghanistan and, and Speaker Pelosi called us back to, to vote on some of their domestic priorities. So I'm in my house in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I'm, I'm doing well. I, I've had my first cup of coffee, so we're just plugging along. I want to get into a lot of elements of the last couple of weeks, but let me ask you kind of kind of a tactical or maybe even an operational and strategic question. Do you feel like Afghanistan is getting less focus from Congress quite simply because they are on right recess and because so many people at this time of year are on vacation? They had, you know, you got kind of third stringers on television that maybe the country and especially lawmakers are not around and, and weren't planning on being here. Probably make the argument both ways. You know, on the other hand, um, the fact that we aren't dealing with other pieces of legislation by and large meant there was more time to focus. I mean, if we had to deal with, um, you know, if if this if the collapse of Afghanistan had occurred while we were, you know, in session, voting on bills all day, attending committee hearings all day, um, there would have been a lot less time to dedicate to some of our casework efforts to get people out. So I think just the volume of requests coming into congressional offices uh, were, were pretty astounding. Um, you know, we are my team and having I was involved with the SIV issue. I wrote a I wrote an op ed for the Daily Beast on SIVs back when the Iraq SIV program was lapsing in 2013 under the Obama administration. So this is something I've been following for a while and had been involved with a bipartisan group back in April. Um, and, and, you know, Matt Zeller, I mean, with you know, those outside groups and also an inside cohort of us in Congress urging the Biden administration to clear away some of the backlog that they had inherited. Now that the withdrawal date was set, it was time to move fast to get these people out. They did not heed our warnings and waited until the end of July. And, and that's one of the reasons why we saw the chaos that we did. But, you know, I think from a congressional standpoint, um, our office, uh, you know, Cobble fell, I believe, on a Sunday morning. Um, by that Sunday evening, we'd held a conference call. We had retasked a quarter of our staff to be exclusively focused on this issue. Um, by midweek, the following week, we realized even that was probably inadequate for the task at hand. And so we onboarded um, probably the oldest intern at Capitol Hill, but one of the organizers of the outside effort so that we could directly plug in between the civilian volunteers, the, the veterans community, former diplomats, um, former DOD officials, uh, journalists, that whole large group uh, that was working on organizing um, with the committee staff we had to be directly plugged in with state and DOD, you know, at that um, congressional level as well. So uh, I think for most congressional offices, this was something they had to work to spin up because they didn't have the, that muscle memory. Um, and so, but I, I don't think that this occurring in August was necessarily bad on the congressional side. Now, when you had a president who was, you know, 
taking vacation or on vacation, kept trying to get back to that vacation during that time. You had a secretary of state who was on vacation. You know, I think from a White House perspective, they were expecting things to be smooth sailing and, and, and much more calm. So I think that was probably the bigger hurdle to just how this timing unfolded. But I got to say, if you're an adversary and you want to pull something off, um, you know, August is not a bad time, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, there, there's a strategic component here, end of August or around, you know, Christmas, New Year's is kind of a time when when you know that a lot of America is shut down. And I think, you know, that answer, Peter, is, is a reflection of your vigilance, but also your connection to this issue that maybe some of your colleagues don't have. And I want to pull that apart. You just got back from Afghanistan. You actually went there in the midst of all this shit, you know, right before the service members were killed, when there was a feeling that this was fading. Right. And I thought that the White House was trying to make it fade. Hey, this is a good news story. We're getting a lot of people out. Look at how many babies are being born on planes. Uh, You have served in the army in Iraq. You served in in Afghanistan as a civilian. You worked in Team Rubicon and a humanitarian organization. So you understand this from a couple levels. You go to Afghanistan. You're a Republican with Seth Moulton, another combat veteran who's a Democrat. You caught a lot of flack for it. You got a lot of support for it. Um, I want to ask you. Uh, you've, you've answered why you went, but I know, I know you'll make that a part of this answer. But now that you've had a little bit of time, um, what is the most important, most important thing you want people to know about that trip? What did you see that we couldn't see? I think from the outside, you couldn't see just how vulnerable American forces were, just how dependent we were on the Taliban. Uh, we went to the old domestic passenger terminal um, on the civilian side. And there, I mean, this is a place that I've been dozens of times when I worked in Afghanistan, both when I was flying, you know, to, to Kandahar or to Herat, um, or, you know, there, it was adjacent to the international terminal. So anytime I was leaving or getting back into the country and, it, you know, obviously a, a spooky kind of zombie apocalypse feeling where places that you used to have throngs of people and tight security, you're now just wandering through, you know, with a couple of soldiers here or there. Um, but outside there, there were maybe a half dozen soldiers sitting down on, on swivel chairs with desks turned over uh, and safes and other you know, equipment kind of creating a little bit of cover if they needed to for a firing position. And then just a couple of meters in front of them, a bunch of barbed wire, a couple of meters in front of them uh, was a, a line of cars. And behind that was the Taliban. I mean, that this was where they would come and have deconfliction meetings on a daily basis where um, the Taliban of the U.S. would sit down and work through, you know, what issues they were having, uh, resolve any disputes. Um, you know, this was not a, a U.S. military post that was ready to defend itself. This was a, a very vulnerable American position that was completely dependent on the Taliban's goodwill uh, in order to affect not only getting people through the gates, but also getting our forces out of the country uh, on a small airport with a single runway in a pretty crowded urban environment. And I think that was one of the reasons why both Seth and I went in thinking we need to make the argument to, to give our troops more time. We need to figure out how to push beyond the 31st. And after talking with the commanders, after seeing that, we realized we're not in the, in the we're not right now in a position to ask for anything from the Taliban. That's not to say that we couldn't, you know, kill a lot of Taliban if we wanted to. We couldn't, you know, return to, um, you know, some type of fighting position. But then you're talking about trying to evacuate thousands of American soldiers, you know, from a single runway that can be disabled with one well-placed mortar round. I mean, so again, we were just not in any type of position to to 
frankly, anything. And that was just staggering to me. In addition to the vulnerability of our folks at those gates, I mean, we saw what happened to Ghost Company at Abbey Gate, um, the, the horrific uh, ISIS-K attack there. Um, you know, I think that's something that wasn't understood on the outside as it looked okay, maybe there were times where it was not orderly, but it looked like we had a plan here. I mean, to the extent there was a plan, it was cobbled together by the folks on the ground, some of whom fled the U.S. Embassy with, with minutes notice, got to the Kabul airport after it had been overrun by tens of thousands of civilians, had to restore order and, and clarity there, and then immediately pivot to affecting this incredible massive evacuation, screening people on the outside, trying to provide security, but also increasing that throughput as much as possible to get American citizens and our loyal Afghan allies to safety. So, uh, you know, this, um, I have, I'm, I struggle to think of a more perilous position that we have put a U.S. forces in in the last 20 years of, of conflict. Mm. Just yeah. How untenable. <laughs> I, I could see that from afar, having been an infantry platoon leader. I remember being in Iraq where there were thousands of people around us, three Humvees on foot. They said, if they ever come at us, we're gone. We're, you know, one suicide bomber and we're incinerated. So I want to dig, dig deeper into what you're saying and what, what Seth has been saying. I don't think anybody in the media has really pushed you on this. So you went over there and said, I want to extend. You came back and said, we shouldn't extend. But you're saying we shouldn't extend because it was so fucked up that it was, it was absolutely vulnerable and we had to get the heck out before it could get worse. You weren't saying we shouldn't pull people out. We shouldn't find oh, no. alternatives. This wasn't well, urgent. And I think that got a little bit lost in the sauce here. You guys came back and said, this is so bad. It's so far gone that we got to get the hell out of there because it could get so much worse, which is what all of us who have been in situations like that could really see, which was kind of an ultimate soft target. And that was a failure of leadership, too, that I want to get into. But am I right in, in kind of shaping up how you guys saw this? Yeah. Well, if you think about it, why would we want to extend? We would want to extend to be able to evacuate more people. But if we extended without the acquiescence of the Taliban um, and, and the Taliban either, you know, just don't let anyone else in. Boom. Mission failure. We're not going to be able to get more people out. Or if it came back to the U.S. and the Taliban directly fighting us. Well, guess who's caught in the middle there? Right. I mean, all of the people that we're trying to rescue. So at the end of the day, I mean, again, this is not between a good option and a bad option. It was between a bad option and a worse option. And, and that was, I think, the, the reality that was really driven home that I think was hard to see from the outside. I mean, we can kind of feel it from that, that kind of crowd desperation standpoint and just looking at the base relative to its surrounding areas. Uh, but thinking through just why is it we want to extend and some folks just rattling the bang in the war drum. It's like, OK, yeah, again, we could kill a lot of them. They would kill some of us. But if we're doing that in order to get people out, that's not going to happen. Right. I mean, we do not have that leverage. We do not have that tactical advantage. We are fighting from a weak position and there's really nothing we could have done to strengthen it. So we've been focused on the effort to save our allies, which I know you have been as well. We've had Matt Zeller on. We've had Jane Horton on. We've had others on. And we've talked about the moral imperative. We've talked about the strategic imperative, how this is a betrayal for the folks on the ground. When you and Seth were there, you were there when a lot of folks, especially Democrats who were trying, a very few of them, but a few Democrats and, and people in the media were trying to defend Biden, saying this is going great. Look, no Americans have died. That was the line. You kept hearing it over and over again. And all of us were waiting for the haymaker, right? You don't say something like that because you've been there and you know how precarious that is. You guys get back, you catch a bit of flack. 
the, the you know the service members are killed. Now here we are after the deadline, and what I view uh, has happened is the president and especially Jake Sullivan and other spokespeople are spiking the ball and saying this is a good news story. Look at how many we got out. This is over. I believe it's not about how many we got out, it's how many we left behind. Um, I don't think this is a good news story. I think it's a catastrophic leadership failure and we have to separate the withdrawal from the evacuation because those are two separate things. But can you answer for me, Peter, in your view, as a congressman, uh, what do we need next? What needs to happen right now? And will there be accountability in Washington? And can you be a part of that? Because we've heard Biden's gonna go get ISIS-K. He's not going to who's he going to fire in Washington because he doesn't seem to think anything went wrong. But no. but all, most of us who are being honest and who are not partisan see how much went wrong. So what happens next and what, what can you and Congress ask for next? And and will how and will that include accountability for leadership failure? Yeah. So, so I mean, we need to obviously continue to get the Americans who want to get out who are stranded and our loyal Afghan allies who weren't able to get out. We need to continue to affect that evacuation. Uh, we need to make sure that that evacuation doesn't put individuals at risk with, um, you know, uh, challenging and perilous conditions on the ground in Qatar, you know, that we are safely vetting and, and processing those individuals, both safely in terms of making sure who's coming to the U.S. is qualified to come to the U.S., but also safely in terms of the, the living conditions that they have. Because after Seth and I were in um, Kabul, we went to uh, we went to Ali Asalim in Kuwait. We went to Al-Udid in Qatar. You know, we saw the other components of that lily pad evacuation strategy um, and, and some concerns that we brought back to D.C., flag for leadership um, and are making sure that we're working to address directly with the people on the ground there. Um, now, I, I kind of have three main takeaways uh, for what we need to do next. You know, obviously on the evacuation front, Jason Crow and I just introduced a bill yesterday to raise that SIV cap and to have the SIV also be eligible for some of the people who were not just interpreters, but um, you know, had worked directly for U.S. organizations supporting the mission and had put themselves at risk. Uh, and we saw yesterday the coverage of the Voice of America journalists. I mean, again, these are people directly working for the U.S. that have been targeted and killed by the Taliban in years prior. So we have an enduring obligation there. And then we also have a strong obligation or we also must be working to address why the withdrawal went so catastrophically. I hope that there are some resignations because there are some individuals, you know, who should, to your point, not be viewing this as a mission accomplished moment, um, but really view this as, you know, we we made the best of a bad situation, but we're, those individuals are partially responsible for the bad situation. Second, getting um, Congress to be back in the driver's seat around two things. One, intelligence analysis. Uh, we should have a congressional in, independent intelligence analysis bureau. We don't trust the president to give us accurate budget numbers. And so we have a congressional budget office. But when it comes to intelligence analysis that underpins you know, our military strategies and underpins our, our bearing and security in the world, uh, we somehow have that blind trust and faith um, that the you know, uh, several, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars spent in that realm, you know, Congress just is given cherry picked reports that can easily be either either manipulated or just highlighted in such a way as to derive whatever conclusion the executive wants us to derive. 
And then we need to look at the broader issues of, of war powers and authorizations. This is something that I was championing since my first day in office. Uh, so we're still operating on this post 9-11 AUMF, very open-ended. It was intended for Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda, uh, ended up getting drawn to 19 countries, um, going after groups that didn't exist on 9-11, going after groups that were actually fighting Al-Qaeda when we were targeting them. So we need better authorizations because I think every member of Congress every two years had to give an up or down vote on whether or not to continue this mission in Afghanistan. Uh, they would have asked a lot better questions and the president and their executive team would have had to give a lot better answers. And then we need to be focused on just accountability, a 9-11 style commission, uh, not just on the past you know, two and a half weeks, but on the past two decades. You know, what went wrong and how and why did it endure so long in terms of our Intel, our you know, just national security imperatives, you know, how we aligned resources. Uh, why is it that at any point in the past 20 years, you can ask a general, what's our mission in Afghanistan? And you'd probably get a different answer, right? I mean, these are all questions we need to ask. These are lessons that we need to learn. And beyond just learning them, we need to apply them. So we make sure that no other American service members are put in that impossible position. So an important question I wanted to ask you, Peter, was about the AUMF. So there's a lot of talk about it, especially within the military veterans community, the intelligence community. We know it's a blank check for the president. Is this the moment? Can we actually end the AUMF? Can you and Seth and these other folks who understand it and who, and who understand? There's a lot of folks say, bring all the troops home. They have no idea how many troops we have in how many places. There were reports that we have troops in, in, in the Congo. I mean, they, most Americans don't know this. Is this realistic? Can we get this done? I, I think we can. And again, just having... Getting rid of these old AUMFs does not mean we lose any defensive capability. The president as commander in chief under Article 2 still retains the ability to operate in self-defense of our forces or our country. Um, we're working on something similar around emergency powers. And the goal isn't to completely neuter the president and, and tie his hands. The goal is to say, listen, we understand there's going to be emergency circumstances you have to react to quickly, but you cannot use that excuse to draw something out indefinitely. Right. I mean, if you think of how many members of Congress who are serving today were actually around in um, what September, October of 2001, when this uh, AUMF, or sorry, September of 2001, when this AUMF was passed, um, you know, that that is just a delegated authority that we need to recapture. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that Congress is going to fix problems, but it's it's a institutional remedy in order to, again, force that question, force members of Congress to take a sense of ownership over it, but also force the executive to be, have to better articulate what exactly we are doing and why and create some measurable outcomes. So in order to get outcomes, we have to have effectiveness. And you have been uniquely independent in your views and in your practice and in your voting. Uh, you were one of the few Republicans to vote for the impeachment of, of Donald Trump. Um, you know, I have two questions for you because this is independent Americans. Number one, why are you a Republican? Why are you not an independent and, or something else? And what do you think is the future of the Republican Party? Is it you and Kinzinger and Liz Cheney or something else? Or is it Trump? And and how are you going to influence that over the next you know year, especially when it seems like it's so critical to the preservation of our democracy? Yeah, I, I guess I'll answer the second question first because it kind of leads back into to the first question. Yeah. Um, you know, I I don't think that having 
an, an orientation either towards an individual or towards a personality or opposed to an individual or opposed to a personality. I don't think either of those are healthy outcomes. Um, to me, we have to boil down and distill what it is, what are the principles that we actually believe in. Those principles to me, and this is why I'm a Republican, are limited government. They are, you know, having that limited government be effective and competent, but having it be limited and recognizing its own um, its own limitations and having a sense of humility there. It's also, you know, just that economic freedom, that sense that so much growth and prosperity and opportunity comes from, you know, being able to participate in the economy, being able to, you know, get that upward social mobility uh, within, you know, an entrepreneurial environment. And so you want that economy to be as unconstrained and unmanipulated as possible with you know, some relevant checks, but not, um, not centrally managed and centrally planned. And then also that focus on, on individual rights and on the individual, you know, as an entity that is uniquely endowed, um, you know, by our creator. So that, that sense of limited government, economic freedom and individual liberty, to me, is why I'm a Republican. Uh, I think when the, the Democratic response to just about every problem is, you know, what can Washington, D.C. do rather than first asking the question of, is this a problem that can be solved by the government? And if so, what is the lowest level that it can be solved? Because that lower level is going to tackle it a lot more effectively. If you have a pothole, you want to call up, you know, your local road commission. You don't want to petition your member of Congress to get a bill passed in order to allocate funding that's going to come down, you know, a decade later. So all of these are reasons why I'm a Republican. But again, uh, we we have to have a Republican Party that's oriented around core values and hues closely to them, rather than one that just tries to chase whatever the populist sentiment of the moment is. You're fighting a lot of things right now, Pete. Um, so a lot of enemies. Yeah, well, and a lot of allies. You're, you're, you know, you're kind of carrying the spirit animal of John McCain and other mavericks who've come through the Republican Party, and there probably there definitely aren't enough of right now. But if you know, if Trump is the nominee again, do you stay in this party? Uh, I, that, that is a, a question to ask in, in 2024, and, and not in 2021. Um, you know, again, right now. Um, I have to I have to narrow my aperture uh, to the tasks at hand. Well, I need to let you narrow your aperture to the next thing you need to do. I'm really grateful for this much time, for your focus, for your leadership. You're one of those guys who didn't have to go to Congress. And I'm glad you're there. We need more people who don't have to be there, who we need, who we need to be there. And you're a guy, I don't care what party you're a part of. I'm going to support you and root for you and try to help you everywhere I can. I'm, I'm rooting for you, especially on the demands for accountability around this, around the insurrection, around so many other things. Um, thank you for all you're doing, man. And we really, really appreciate you. Uh, the great and powerful Congressman Peter Meyer. Stay vigilant, my friend. Thank you, Paul. All right. If you don't know, now you know. That's a rising voice in American political leadership that you need to track on. And my deepest thanks to Peter and his congressional team. When we say look for the helpers, he's what we're talking about. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. There's a lot of pain out there. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of confusion. And it's helpers that are bringing the light to contrast the heat. It's the helpers that are lifting each other up. And Peter's one of them. 
and I want to thank him. I also want to send my massive thanks to my wife and my two boys. We're squeezing out those last couple days of summer and getting ready for school. We're doing some final days of swimming. We're getting outside as much as possible, and we're doing a lot of Legos. And if you've never been, I highly recommend you visit the new Legoland in Goshen, New York. My thanks also to our fearless Patreon members, all of you who are already part of the community, the vigilant, the very vigilant, and the most vigilant. Those folks are going to get extra content with Peter. So Patreon members, get ready. Go on over to Patreon and you can listen to it. I had Peter stick around for a few more minutes to give us his favorite drink, the car question, and what makes him happy, and pancakes versus waffles. He tried not to answer and sounded like a congressman in that moment, but I pushed him and I got it out of him. Patreon members, that's coming your way. If you're not a part of that movement, you can join our growing insurgent army of independents for exclusive access and events by becoming a member of the Independent Americans Patreon community. Thanks to all of you who've recently joined. In just five bucks, you get access to events, extra content, merch discounts, and a lot more. And maybe most importantly, you help support this show and keep us speaking truth to power. My thanks to the powerful Righteous Media team, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, and precise Paula Hernandez. They make this show possible. And it's been a hard few weeks. A lot of other folks are on vacation, but our team is stepping up to rise to this moment, and they're making this show possible. They're also making some new shows possible. New shows from Righteous Media are coming, and our next one is coming next week. Stay tuned to our social media. It is a powerful new show hosted by a past guest of this show, and it will be amazing. It'll be premiering the week of 9-11, and you're going to love it. More coming up in the next episode of this show, but stay tuned. Righteous Media is expanding, and we're about to launch another ship flying this flag. I think you're going to love it. And if you love this episode, please support us and go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. You can subscribe for absolutely free and share. It costs nothing, and it'll help us grow this movement and share this content. And you can visit us on social media and also check out independentamericans.us. On that website, you can get all our content, and you can see and listen to all my recent media appearances. I've been busy, and I've been on a lot of shows analyzing and breaking down the latest breaking news out of Afghanistan and beyond. And I'm on MSNBC with Nicole Wallace almost weekly now. I've also recently joined a few of our past guests on their shows. I joined Chris Cuomo on CNN Cuomo Primetime. And just today, I joined our friend Errol Lewis of New York One on his podcast. They're all linked at independentamericans.us. I also joined the 18th Airborne Corps podcast. Long ago, I deployed as a lowly part of the U.S. Army's mighty 18th Airborne Corps. And I was humbled to join their podcast this week and their outstanding host, Colonel Joe Buccino, for a conversation on Afghanistan, the anniversary of 9-11, leadership, mental health, and much more. The members of the 18th Airborne Corps were on the ground in Afghanistan until the very end. They're always leading for America, often when nobody is watching, and they represent the best of us. When I say look for the helpers, they are what I mean. The 18th Airborne Corps is what I mean. So my thanks to Joe and everybody at the 18th Airborne Corps for having me. If you go over to that website, you can also see video of this conversation with Peter. 
and over 100 episodes of people who've been touched in different ways by Afghanistan for the last 20 years. Ranging from Jake Wood of Team Rubicon, who was a scout sniper in the Marine Corps in Afghanistan, to emergency surgeon Paul Hazer, who treated troops coming out of Afghanistan and landing in Landstuhl Army Base. Activist Zainab Salbi, who's been an incredible voice for women in Afghanistan and around the world. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, who ran for president and promised to pull out of Afghanistan. And Marine reporter James Laporta, who's been doing incredible reporting on Afghanistan in the last couple of weeks. That's all at independentamericans.us. And if you haven't already, go back and check the last three episodes of this show focused on Afghanistan with Kristen Rouse, Jane Horton, and Matt Zeller. We've been getting tremendous feedback, and it's all also on the Righteous Media YouTube page. If you've got friends who aren't into podcasts, just send them a YouTube link and you can hook them up. They also make excellent content for students. If you're a teacher, if you're a student, if you just want to get smart, it's excellent content to share. And in a true full circle experience, I want to send a shout out to my students at Amherst College. This week, I started teaching a seminar in the political science department. I will be a visiting professor at Amherst College, and I'm teaching a class called Understanding 9-11. Most of my students weren't even born on 9-11. And it's my mission to try to educate them and anyone else I can about what happened in that time, what happened over the last 20 years, and what happens next. And one key part of what I'll share with them around this 20th anniversary of 9-11 is the spirit of 9-11. A spirit of unity, a spirit of cohesion, a spirit of true patriotism. People of all backgrounds working together looking out for each other. And that's what we need now, to look out for each other, especially now. And we'll keep this movement growing week by week by week, and we will stay vigilant because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And with hope in our hearts, it's the way we can learn the true lessons of 9-11 and truly never forget. Pass that hope and know that you are not alone in your vigilance, especially now. We are all vigilant. We're all in this together. We're all connected to Afghanistan, even if our government abandons it. And we're all connected to each other. From the thousands of Afghans that made it out, to the families of the 13 service members that were killed, to Congressman Peter Meyer, to you. All across the country, we are all connected. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay frosty and stay vigilant, America.